Welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your audio source for news in Hoosier Law, brought to you by Taft. I'm Jordan Morey, Managing Editor of the Indiana Lawyer and your host. And I'm Olivia Covington, co-host and editor of the Indiana Lawyer. Whether you're listening to us while you shovel your driveway or during your daily commute, thanks for joining us. On today's episode, we'll open with some recent headlines before our one-on-one interview with a leader from the Hoosier legal community. This week's guest is Indiana Senate Minority Leader Greg Taylor, who recently stopped by our office to offer his thoughts at the halfway point of the legislative session. We've got a packed show for you today, so let's get going. Today is February 9th, 2022, and these are your headlines. First, before we get into this week's news, we want to tell you about something happening here at Indiana Lawyer. We're now accepting nominations for our 2022 Leadership in Law Awards. Like in previous years, the 2022 awards will honor 15 distinguished barristers, or lawyers who have practiced for at least 20 years, as well as 15 up-and-comers who have practiced for 10 years or less. We're also bringing back our two new awards from last year, Legal Support Stars, honoring paralegals and other legal support staffers, and the Lifetime Achievement Award. The Lifetime Achievement Award is our most prestigious honor, recognizing a lawyer who has demonstrated a commitment to community service, mentorship, and civility over at least 25 years of practice. This year, you can submit your nominations through our website. Instructions and awards criteria are also available at theindianalawyer.com. We'll honor each of this year's winners at an event in June. Stay tuned for more info about that. All right, now let's dive into some court news. The snowy weather last week forced many courthouses to close, but the judiciary kept working, issuing opinions and other important updates. One update was the announcement that Magistrate Judge Deborah McVicker Lynch will retire from the Indiana Southern District Court at the end of October. IL reporter Katie Stancombe has more on Lynch's retirement and what it takes to be a federal magistrate. Katie? Thanks, Jordan. That's right. The Southern District Court announced months in advance that Magistrate Judge Deborah McVicker Lynch will officially step down from the bench on October 31st. But the early announcement is intentional, Lynch said, because the process of becoming a magistrate judge is complex and lengthy. Lynch formerly taught high school English and graduated from Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law. She was appointed to the federal bench in October 2008 and was reappointed in 2016. In her nearly 14 years as a magistrate judge, Lynch says that she's loved working with lawyers and their clients. In fact, they're one of the most rewarding aspects of the job. I think the other thing I'd have to put, though, at the near the top of the list is just working with my colleagues and having a really close view of what the system of justice really looks like. Because I think from the outside, lay people and even lawyers have all sorts of notions about how justice works. But to get to be on the front lines of that and really see how decisions are made, to see the hard work and the integrity uh, that go into it is really exciting. Although she loves being a magistrate judge and said there's nothing about it that makes her want to retire, Lynch said she's looking forward to spending more time with her family, including her two grandsons. She also might teach a class and even take a class here and there just for fun. I just love my job and it's not it's not that I want to to retire to leave what I do. I love what I do. I just at that point in my life where I have some some other things that I'd like to do. Lynch says being entrusted to do the right thing day in and day out is fulfilling, 
She says a good magistrate judge should be diligent, have integrity, intelligence, and fairness. Southern District Court Magistrate Judge Mario Garcia agreed, saying that a successful magistrate judge should also be industrious, have experience, and be able to get up to speed quickly. Garcia and Clerk of Court Roger Sharp will host a webinar about the day-to-day -day activities of a magistrate judge, explain the application and vetting process, and answer questions from those interested in applying for Lynch's upcoming vacancy on February 11th at noon. Uh, not only is this an opportunity for uh, potential candidates who are applying for this new opening, but I, I really want to encourage individuals who and, and professionals who uh, may be looking at this uh, five or ten years down the road to start thinking about what types of qualifications and experiences they would want to have to put their best foot forward in applying for a, a future position. Because, of course, uh, as we know, there'll be somebody new they will be sitting in these seats uh, before long. Thanks, Katie. Staying in the federal courts, we have an update on the lawsuit challenging Indiana University's school-wide vaccine mandate. IL editor Olivia Covington has the details. A group of eight IU students have been a leading voice in the fight against COVID-19 vaccine mandates, arguing since June that the Bloomington School violated their rights when it imposed a vaccine requirement with limited exceptions for medical, religious, or ethical objections. The students filed a lawsuit in Indiana Federal Court, but their arguments have been struck down at the District Court, Appellate Court, and Supreme Court levels. The first time the students went to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, they were seeking a stay of the mandate, which was denied. They later returned to the Seventh Circuit, this time arguing on the merits that the mandate violated their rights to bodily autonomy and integrity and to medical choice. According to the eight students, those rights can only be infringed if the school meets a heightened standard of scrutiny. But the appellate court dismissed the case as moot. That's because of the eight plaintiffs, seven have already been granted a religious exemption. While the eighth plaintiff did not qualify for an exemption, she has since withdrawn from the school. According to the Seventh Circuit, quote, the obstacle to resolution of this suit is that the only plaintiff withstanding withdrew from the university, end quote. The IU students were represented by the BOP law firm in Terre Haute. At our deadline, there had been no activity on the case docket since the opinion was handed down. We'll let you know if that changes. Now, let's move to the state courts. If you're involved in criminal law in Indiana, then you're probably familiar with Criminal Rule 26, which gives judges discretion to grant pretrial release to certain defendants as long as they don't pose a risk to themselves or others, and as long as they're not a flight risk. The courts and the legislature have done a lot of work on pretrial reform in recent years, with the General Assembly formally putting pretrial release practices into state law. But the question of how to exactly follow these laws is one that the Indiana Supreme Court was recently asked to answer. In a February 3rd decision, in the case of DeWeese v. State, the justices ruled that the statutory reforms enhance judges' pretrial discretion, rather than restrict it. In practice, that ruling means that Clay Superior Court did not abuse its discretion when it declined to reduce bond for Sierra DeWeese, who as a teenager was charged with taking part in the armed robbery of a 67-year-old man. The trial court pointed to the, quote, extremely serious nature of the crime and the victim's continued fear as its reasons for declining to reduce her bond. The Court of Appeals of Indiana reversed and ordered DeWeese released immediately, but the justices reinstated the trial court's order and urged the Court of Appeals to use caution in future cases. According to Justice Christopher Goff, quote, issuing an opinion effective immediately and before the parties had the opportunity to seek rehearing potentially deprived the court of further briefing on the merits, end quote. Ultimately, 
the justices determined that the state met its burden of proving DeWeese was a pretrial risk, and the trial court followed the appropriate procedural safeguards. But the justices also noted the trial court has since granted conditional release to DeWeese, and if either party wants to challenge those conditions, the trial court must hold a hearing. Next, some lawsuit news. You may have seen our reporting on a lawsuit filed over the summer against Indiana Treasurer Kelly Mitchell. Mitchell's former chief deputy filed the lawsuit against the treasurer, six individuals, eight banks, and one law firm, Ice Miller LLP, back in August. The former deputy, James Holden, is alleging Mitchell steered contracts worth millions of dollars to campaign donors without approval from other agencies. Ice Miller features in this lawsuit because, according to Holden, Mitchell signed a lobbying contract with the firm in 2014. Holden is arguing that the contract violates a state law prohibiting any state agency from being represented by an attorney without the written consent of the attorney general. But the defendants are fighting back, filing motions to dismiss the lawsuit. Ice Miller joined the eight banks in a motion arguing the Marion Superior Court doesn't have jurisdiction over the case because Holden allegedly bases his claims solely on publicly available information. They argue that he has failed to prove his claims are based on independent knowledge as required under the Indiana False Claims and Whistleblower Protection Act. Additionally, the law firm and the eight banks are arguing that Holden has failed to state a claim by not alleging that they knowingly and intentionally made false and fraudulent claims and that he has not made any specific representation about their services to Mitchell. Lastly, the defendants claim that they were not required to obtain approvals of any contract or certify those approvals were granted under the Financial Reorganization Act of 1947. At the time I recorded this, Holden hadn't filed a response to these motions to dismiss. We'll keep you updated on the case as it progresses. All right, let's wrap up with a preview of a story that Jordan and I are working on for the next print issue of the Indiana Lawyer. At the end of January, President Joe Biden said that he planned to make good on his pledge to nominate the first black woman to the U.S. Supreme Court after Justice Stephen Breyer announced his retirement after nearly 28 years on the bench. Closer to home, the number of black female judges in Indiana, both at the state and federal levels, has remained small. To date, there have only been two black justices on the Indiana Supreme Court and three black judges on the Indiana Court of Appeals. We're speaking with black women judges from across the state, as well as experts on equity and inclusion, to get their take on the significance of Biden's decision and what it might mean for the future of Indiana's judiciary. Stay tuned. Okay, that's it for this week's headlines. You might have noticed that we didn't give you a legislative update like we have been throughout the session of the General Assembly. Well, that's because this week's extended interview is with Senator Greg Taylor, an Indianapolis Democrat who leads the Senate Minority Caucus. Senator Taylor sat down with us to talk about the big issues being tackled at the State House this year. Stick around to hear our conversation with him. Taft, today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. For this week's extended interview, we have Indiana Senate Minority Leader Greg Taylor in studio with us today. Senator Taylor, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Mr. Before we discuss the current legislative session, we thought we'd uh, touch on something of particular interest to our listeners. 
So to begin, could you tell us a little bit about your work as an attorney and uh, how it led you to politics? Well, uh, it's an interesting story. I actually moved to Indianapolis after I graduated from uh, what is now Maurer Law School and uh, moved to Indianapolis and worked for the Indiana Department of Commerce right out of law school. And during that position, in that position, I met a lot of people who were in a political climate and uh, ha happened to meet uh, Senator Glenn Howard. He's the my predecessor in the position that I have now. And got to know him very well, moved uh, to Indianapolis, moved up uh, to his district and uh, did a lot of things about in, in regards to the community and things like that. And uh, he was ill and decided that that was gonna be his last term. So I put my name in the hat and here I am. Uh, since 2008, I've been in this position and love it. Tell us about your practice. So I'm actually uh, part of a regional minority-owned law firm, and uh, I do pract I practice law. I'm what people would call a transactions attorney. Okay. I, I don't go to court unless absolutely necessary. <laughs> um, and I do I practice in the area of municipal finance. Uh, okay. Municipalities can borrow money in the uh, bond market at very low rates, and uh, I draft uh, help to draft some of the documents associated with allowing them to borrow at uh, lower interest rates. So that's what I do in my law practice. And uh, so uh, that answers your question. It does. Yeah. <laughs> so we had a story a few weeks ago. Um, we found that just 14% of Indiana legislators are also lawyers, um, kind of a low number. So, I mean, you know, do we you think we need more? Or what's the benefit of having lawyer legislators? Well, there's no doubt being a, an attorney and actually going through the actual study of analytical and logical reasoning helps you when it comes to coming up with public policy. And sometimes it is difficult to, uh, you know, explain to legislators that, hey, legally, this may not be able to work because we have a thing called the Constitution, uh, not only of the United States, but of the state of Indiana. And sometimes it gets difficult to discuss with people uh, who don't understand the law or how the law works. Uh, it does sometimes get difficult to explain that to them. So, yeah, I believe that we could uh, use a, a, some more attorneys, but, you know, there, there are some people who would say you get too many attorneys in the room <laughs> and uh, you'll never get anything done. So uh, I, I, I think we do need some more attorneys. Um, but this is the Indiana General Assembly. We have farmers, insurance guys. We have financial analysts. We have teachers. We have principals. We have a, a gamut uh, of people, and I think that's also good. Sure. Today is the start of the second half of the legislative session. Uh, I know you've looked over dozens of bills so far, but um, are there some of the bills that you're in support of you feel have a strong chance of also passing in the House? Yeah. So um, we've, we've had several pieces of legislation. Actually, uh from our caucus, the minority caucus, we have a summer study committee on uh, affordability of child care, which I think is important. Uh, Senator Kadira uh, from Fatty Kadira from Indianapolis has that. We have the, uh, he also has a legislation that's going to review apartment standards because habitability standards are really something that's important to people who rent. Uh, we've got a bill from Senator Lannon uh, in regards to land banks for. Uh, for communities that have properties in their land banks, how they dispose of those. Uh, we've got, uh, I've got a bone marrow transplant bill, I mean, excuse me, bone marrow registry bill that uh, allows people to register to be able to donate bone marrow if they become a match. 
Um, and so, yeah, we've got a lot of bills. When you say dozens, uh, I, I would have probably 100, 150 uh, bills that we've passed out of the Senate going over to the House. But those are just some of the ones I think are going to have some very good opportunities to pass. What about some of the... Um the, the COVID bills and uh, you know, all that fun stuff. There's Senate Bill 3 versus House Bill 1001 and, and all that. <laughs> well, let me say this. I can say uh, just from the, from the standpoint where I'm at in the Senate, it's very, it's a lot easier to have pragmatic discussions about legislation with 50 people rather than 100. Sure. And the House of Representatives has 100 people. Uh, so you're going to see legislation that comes out that probably something that a lot of us won't agree with. But then when it comes over to the Senate, it gets more of a pragmatic approach. And I think 1001 is going to have a more of a pragmatic approach in the, in the Senate. Uh, I think there's going to be some discussions in the majority. Uh, they're going to have to work some things out in order for those bills to make it to the floor and get a vote. Um, and then we've got some very difficult bills, uh, constitutional carries coming over. We've got 1134, which was very controversial uh, in regards to uh, teachers in the classroom. Yes. Um, we're going to have to be uh, very pragmatic about how we approach these issues because they are issues that some people in the state of Indiana are concerned about. But we also need to understand that we're here to do business for the entire state. And what, I, what sometimes comes up in, during the set, these legislative sessions is we have these individual one-off bills that effectively fix something for one person but cause problems for hundreds of others. And we in the Senate, I, it seems that we are a little bit more pragmatic about making sure those types of legislation don't make it. Interesting. Yeah. What about any bills that aren't moving forward? Anything that, you know, you wish had gotten farther? Listen, we... Uh, Medical marijuana. Mm -hmm. um, I have I have been such a proponent of medical and in, in, in really responsible medical marijuana legislation. You know, uh, we can continue to stop the train or put a put a bump in the road, but it's going to come eventually. And what I see as a problem in the state of Indiana, with thirty six other states having some form of marijuana uh, legislation. You're gonna, it's gonna be difficult because if the federal government doesn't reclassifies marijuana as a Schedule II drug for or something like that, you know that cuts down on the opportunity for us to benefit like other states who've already put it in place uh, to do something about it. And you know when you make it bankable with moving it to a Schedule II drug and other states uh, have it, our banks here, local and national banks, are gonna suffer because of it. And so we're gonna we're gonna have to think about that. It's still not getting a hearing. I think there's a study committee bill coming over from the House to the Senate. I hope that gets a hearing because it'll be very important. I don't think we need to study it anymore. <laughs> uh, I think that the science is there. It's just whether or not we have the appetite to move it forward. And then you've got other uh, pieces of legislation like we, we 
there was a lot of Democrats who feel like we should do something about child care, the cost of child care. And one of the things is providing parents with an increased child care tax credit so they receive a credit on their tax liability to the state of Indiana. And we can afford it. We've got a $5 billion surplus that we're talking about sending people a check for $125. Well, you know, just the other day, uh, these, these are things that just happen, and, and it baffles me sometimes. Uh, just the other day, we passed a piece of legislation that's going, on April 16th, people who get the enhanced uh, SNAP benefits, food stamps, food to buy food, are going to lose that benefit on April 16th here in the state of Indiana. Didn't cost the state of Indiana anything. It's the poorest of the poor people who benefit from this, and it goes to buy food. We're going to cut almost $95 of that increased enhancement for families. And at the same time, we're going to send them a check for $125 and say, hey, we gave you your money back. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't make sense to me, and we've got to come up with some, some different standards on how we treat people. And those are some difficult things that I've seen happen. Uh, I'll tell you, it was a very difficult discussion on the floor to think about the fact that we're going to actually uh, stop providing money for poor people to have food. Uh, they can't use it for anything else. And we're going to cut it off. You've been uh, pretty vocal in your opposition of a variety of bills uh, focused on violence in Indianapolis, um, namely Senate Bill 6, 7, 8, and 9. Um, what are uh, some parts of these bills you did disagree with, and what changes would you like to see in them? Um, how can the legislature address the violence issues that are in the city? Well, the perspective that I have, the state of Indiana creates criminal law. And then the locals, the prosecutors, actually enforce it. So those bills, those pieces of legislation, if you look at them, had to do with bail, had to do with increased law enforcement, and very little to do with the things that we know that to help address crime in communities. It's no secret that home, you know, housing insecurities, uh, hunger, uh, mental health, those are issues that help resolve some of the criminal problems. But we at the state of Indiana, we had nothing related to those. Um, and it was all about law enforcement. And the most interesting part about that whole discussion was about the fact that people get out of jail on bail and then go commit a murder. Well, if you look at it, that the, the bail bill only talks about charitable bail organizations. It doesn't talk about the for-profit organizations that represent over almost 70% of the people who got out and committed murder. So the, the, I, I hate to, I, I don't like the fact that it, it just it just smells of political uh, bantering. You want to make the prosecutor look bad, you want to make the judges look bad, you want to make the bail project look bad, but at the same time, crime continues to permeate in the community. And as law enforcement, you would think they would want things to make their jobs easier, but all we see is a, a lot of political bantering about why people are uh, why people are out on bail. And let's remember, you're innocent until proven guilty. So I guess the only option is to leave people in jail when they're charged with a crime, which would be unconstitutional. So we're gonna. There's gonna be some interesting discussions, and I think those pieces of legislation may have a difficult 
uh, rode forward in the House of Representatives. Kind of on a, a similar topic, I was watching the Senate Judiciary Committee last week, um, the debate on that non-compliant prosecutor's bill, and that was a that was a fun one. It, it got pretty intense. Um, I mean, can you talk about kind of why that, that bill, you know, really bothers you? Well, the author of the bill uh, always says that he brought, he had this legislation written before we had our current prosecutor, right. Ryan Mears. And uh, Prosecutor Mears... Uh, said a couple years ago he's not going to pursue simple possession charges for people with with less than two ounces of marijuana. And that started a buzz that, hey, he's not complying with the law. We make the law, and then he determines whether or not he's going to enforce the law. And people didn't like that. Mm -hmm. What he said was that we're not going to pursue these types of charges because they seem to disproportionately affect minority communities. We, don't, we have a jail overcrowding issue. We have people who have mental health needs. So I'm going to look at them by, on a case-by-case -case basis, but I will not be pursuing criminal charges against people who are in possession, mere possession of less than two ounces. And that started a buzz, and now the prosecutor's not enforcing the law. So what we're going to do, and the Attorney General's office, uh, God bless them, actually testified that they had the resources to actually pursue these cases. And, and here's the interesting part. So the first thing is you're going to first interview and investigate what the prosecutor has determined that they're not going to pursue. Then you've got to go through the process of setting up a special prosecutor to actually pursue those charges. And then you've got to go through the process of making those charges stick by putting people in jail, right? Well, at the end of the, the, the amendment that we had on the floor the other day, they're going to force the counties where the attorney general determines that these things are happening, pay for it. So it's an unfunded mandate. They're going to say, you're going to pay for this special prosecutor that we chose. You're going to pay for the services that we, that all of Marion County uh, wants because an elected official Remember, Prosecutor Mears stands for election. If people in Marion County don't like his policy, they can unelect him. They can elect somebody else. And I believe, again, this this timing, you know, we got an election coming up for prosecutor, is a perfect setup for uh, some political bantering back and forth that he's not enforcing the law. So uh, I'm, I'm anxious to see what happens, but I think his policy is real. I think his policy has been effective. Uh, you don't see a lot of people behind bars for mere possession of marijuana, especially when we know our surrounding states, except the one from to the south of actually have legalized some form of it. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So, I mean, Senator Young would say, it, and he has said, you know, it's not in response to, to Ryan Mears and yes. that it's, you know, a preventative measure because these social justice prof prosecutors are yeah, happening yeah. In, in other states. So you just... Don't don't think that's true. You don't agree with that, or, or what? You know, uh, I call it the. Uh, uh, I, I kind of took this from one of the former legislators. I call it the alligator in the mud puddle. Um, the The reality is, we can talk about social justice prosecutors all day long. If you don't like social justice prosecutors, as he calls it, then unelect them. That's what elections are for. 
Um, and I believe that our prosecutor here in Marion County has done a great job. But what they didn't think about, and I brought this up on the floor during the discussion, we've got prosecutors who refuse to prosecute people for carrying a handgun without a license. What happens when you have a, a prosecutor who says, you know what, I think people should be eligible to carry without a license. It's your right to defend yourself, and I'm not going to pursue those charges. Is the attorney general going to take the position that that's something he's going to look into and do? I don't think so. We actually had a sheriff, if you remember, during the pandemic, when the executive order came down from uh, Governor Holcomb's office, which is a law, which is a law, that's a law, that not wearing your mask was a class class A misdemeanor. And this prosecutor said, I will not enforce that. We, what happens in that situation? So, and then who chooses which policies you're going to, which prosecutors you're going to go after? Well, you know, I, I'm kind of scared uh, with this this attorney general we have right now, since well, he might be back from Texas now, since he's down in Texas worrying about the border uh, in Texas, uh, what he's going to do. And, and it really, it really does scare me because it's, it's starting to permeate throughout uh, the session. What can we expect for the second half of the session? <laughs> well, let me, let me, this is the most interesting uh, time for me to be in a minority, especially super minority. Um, you're going to see a lot of infighting uh, in the super majorities. You're going to see, if you don't pass my bill, I'm not going to hear your bill. If you don't pass my bill, I'm not going to hear your bill. I believe this session is going to be one in which we're going to see a lot of that. You know, 1001, Senate Bill 3, you had 167 that that was similar to 1134 in the House, didn't go anywhere. Where is 1134 going to end up in the Senate? Um, there's going to be a lot of infighting. And uh, for me, as a, as a someone who's in leadership but in the minority, I am a, I'm going to tell you it's going to be an interesting time for me because I'm going to sit back and watch a little bit and see what comes to the, to the table. I think you're going to hear a lot. You're, they have this strategy the, the, the supermajority has a strategy where they were here legislation and not vote on it. Mm -hmm. And that is, to me, one of the most detrimental pieces about the process that we have in the Indiana General Assembly is they hear legislation for hours. I mean, we heard the constitutional carry bill, I think it was four or five hours of testimony and no vote. You just placate your, your colleague by having these hearings, having people come and spend their time and you're not even going to take a vote on it. And that's because they know the bill is going to die, and instead of killing their bill, they say, we'll give you a hearing. Well, what about the other bills that they say they don't have time to hear, like bills for child care tax credits, things that are kitchen table issues that we have, that they say, hey, we don't have time for that. Uh, so, you know, it, that kind of stuff is going to happen a lot during the second half. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, be ready. <laughs> <laughs> that will do it for this week's episode. Thanks again uh, to Senator Greg Taylor for joining us today. Uh, listeners, just so you know, we've been in contact with the Republican leadership at the Indiana State House as well, and we hope to have a GOP voice on the podcast soon. Also, just as a reminder, you can listen to all of our previous Indiana Lawyer podcasts on theindianalawyer.com or on your favorite streaming services.